afternoon. And uh, for those of you who went to the um, Air Force Museum, you enjoyed that as well. I recently took my son to an Air Force Museum in um, Canada, and I'm hoping to pay a visit to that one uh, tomorrow afternoon. It's a privilege to be part of this, uh, uh, this conference, and especially to be thinking about this theme, uh, matters of church and state, and uh, in particular to consider how we as Christians need to be thinking about our relationship to the state and what we ought to be doing uh, in our particular uh, cultural moment. I appreciated already the contributions so far um, when we heard, first of all, a kind of survey of uh, historically of how the, the church has wrestled um, with its relationship to the state historically, first of all. And then uh, this morning, how we heard a bit more about what it means to uh, have a Christian attitude towards uh, a, a Christ-centered mind, first towards God and then toward our neighbor, and then what it means to honor um, those in authority. And I want to develop this now a little bit further. I wrestled quite a bit with what to say initially, because I really uh, should have had four sessions, but was only given two. Uh, and, uh, but uh, given that I only had two, I've wrestled a little bit with how to um, position uh, what I want to say. Uh, and I've decided to, to talk first this evening about the gospel basis of liberty and the importance of the church uh, re-emphasizing the importance of the theme of freedom uh, in the gospel. In a time when we are, in, we are seeing and experiencing the uh, encroachment, increasingly the regulation uh, uh, of the church by the state and the increasing reach of the state into almost every area of people's lives. And that was my struggle, really, because I wanted to talk a bit about welfare and a bit about education um, as well. But I thought I need to lay the foundation for that and talk first about freedom. Now, to do that, uh, turn with me, if you would, to uh, Acts chapter 17. And uh, I want to read verses 1 through 7 of Acts 17. You'll recall, of course, that Jesus said, "'You shall know the truth.'" And the truth shall set you free. That there is in the gospel the basis of freedom. Uh, freedom uh, as individuals and the freedom of the church. Paul, uh, it, the, uh, here in the, his ministry uh, to Thessalonica prior to the great encounter uh, in Athens, verses 1 through 7. Then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. 
and Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, first of all, notice that the preaching of the gospel was turning the world upside down. There were social implications to the gospel. It wasn't just a nice, quiet, uh, seeker-friendly chit-chat with a few folk to see if they might accept Jesus into their life. There were social implications immediately when the gospel was preached. And there was an accusation made that they were proclaiming another king. And that this was contrary to the decrees of Caesar. This other king was Jesus. And actually, the charge was true. They were declaring another king. They were talking about another lord, another kurios, king Jesus, a new emperor, Jesus. Now, from antiquity, the value and nature and object of freedom has always been a foundational uh, concern to human beings. We're still concerned with freedom. Uh, In Britain, we're concerned with freedom. Um, You Americans are always talking about freedom. All the politicians talk about freedom. It's, of course, one thing to talk about. It's another to actually live it and believe it. Now, when uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 5, he says this. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. What you had here, essentially, first of all, was an assertion about grace now being the source of salvation, not politics. And this message of grace into the ancient world of salvation, not politics, was radical. It was revolutionary. There's one mediator between man and God, and that is the man Jesus Christ. And as a result, the church was called, Christians were called to be intercessors. To actually mediate, in a sense, in the relationship here between kings and the people and God by bringing prayers, intercessions. The people who bring intercessions are priests. They mediate something. So immediately you have something of the status of the Christian being asserted here that as Christ's ambassadors, they were mediators making intercessions. Not just for ordinary people, but for kings, people in high position. Why? Well, in part, that they might leave us alone. (laughs) That they might leave us alone. That we might live peaceful, quiet lives. Not being constantly interfered with, if you will. Peter, in like manner, he says, and we heard this this morning, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. First and foremost, we are, pe- we are free. 
We're servants of God, Peter says. Live like that. Now, don't use that great freedom as a cover-up for evil. But honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And honor the emperor. So the freedom that they spoke about, grounded in the person of Christ, was first of all personal freedom. That was, is, it is, our salvation is freedom from slavery to sin and death. We're freed from bondage to sin and death. That's the basic freedom of the Christian person. But the implications of that were social and political. We see something of the indication of that in, in Paul telling us that we are intercessors. And that Christ is the one mediator between man and God. Salvation is by grace, not by politics. Now, they weren't political revolutionaries in the sense that they weren't overthrowing the existing government by the sword. We don't see that as the project of the early church. They urge prayer, godly living, honor for those in authority as ministers of God. Now, that is important, of course. Paul does tell us in Romans 13 that the state is God's diaconate. God's minister. And don't forget, it's supposed to be a terror to those who do evil, not to those who do good. So what if the state becomes a terror to those who do good and covers those who do evil? Well, well, then we, of course, have the question of legitimacy. Has it ceased to be God's minister? The church is meant to be God's diaconate. You know, we call in England our... um, our leading MP, the Prime Minister. We have the, uh, our judicial system has the Ministry of Corrections. Because the basic idea in the West was that civil life is a ministry under God. It's civil service under God. And so there is the question, which we can talk about in the question time this evening about, well, what happens when the state ceases to be in any way God's servant? But the early Christian church in the context of tyranny, an authoritarian tyranny in antiquity, where the Roman Senate voted on which gods could be worshipped, they continued the early church to emphasize the nature of Christ as the one mediator between man and God. This is critically important. It's been argued by uh, more than one scholar that A.D. 451 is one of the most important dates in all of church history. The Council of Chalcedon, which established something of the foundation for Western culture and led to the development of liberty. It handed statism a major defeat. The late church historian Roland Bainton Uh, sees the Council of Chalcedon as critical to the building of Western civilization. He said this, The Creed of Chalcedon affirmed the full deity and the full humanity of Christ in two natures. The church, which in the East did so much to disintegrate the empire, in the West became the builder of Christendom, which, however attenuated, still survives as Western civilization. Now, what he goes on to point out is that, and I'll come back to Chalcedon in just a moment, but when the barbarians invaded the West and uh, the Roman Empire's government collapsed, the church actually stepped in to assume many functions of government. 
and he says the great task was to convert the barbarians to orthodox Christianity. The process of their education and civilization also fell largely to the church. So that orthodox Christianity, recognizing Jesus Christ as God and king, fully man and fully God, led to the flourishing progressively of a free church that assumed responsibility in numerous areas in social and civil life. And so as we heard so eloquently uh, yesterday evening, from here on, church and state in a variety of different ways saw themselves as intimately related under God. And it's a long, involved story. And uh, we saw how some of the ways they related themselves that we can't endorse today, of course. But they saw themselves as related. Now, in what way did this Council of Chalcedon start to provide the basis for freedom, which we need to reassert today? Well, as I've, as I've hinted at already, pagan thought, pagan philosophy was statist. That is, the state was a religious institution that was priestly. It saw itself as the center or locus of divinity in history. Think about that for a moment, that if you looked at the Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, the Roman empires, their rulers were worshipped. Very often they were regarded as gods. You see it right there in the Old Testament, don't you? You see Nebuchadnezzar building a statue of himself. In the Old Testament, you see Moloch worship, Moloch worship. Moloch just means king. You saw essentially state deities. In fact, I would argue that you can trace this right back to Nimrod in Genesis 10 and 11 and the establishment of Babel, the first empire builder, and many of the pagan gods were Nimrod, actually. Uh, But essentially, state deities. And... Here you had uh, the differences between gods and men were essentially in degree, not kind. You could, in uh, uh, ancient pagan thought, progress to the status of a god in uh, a number of different ways. Salvation was by self-deification, not by grace. So a person, especially a ruler, would uh, could be elevated to the status of a god. And if you look at the pharaohs, you look at the Babylonian kings and so forth, you see that the pharaohs were considered son of the sun god. You see that the state was the center. It was the focal point of the divine in history. And so the state was priestly in its relationship to the people. There was a collapsing of uh, the priesthood and the kings, if you will, or the government. In fact, the, uh, in Rome, the Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus. He was the high priest. And where all aspects of Roman society uh, had, uh, religi- had religious significance. Even the courts, the hearings in the courts, involved often um, priestly religious processions. Uh, there was a religious significance to the arena. So in various guises, this faith, this statism, was the substructure of all uh, the pagan world. And so the question for the early church, you see it in the New Testament and we see it in the early centuries of the church, was this, Christ or Caesar? Who is Lord, ultimately? Is Jesus Christ Lord? Is he the mediator between man and God? Or 
Is it Caesar? And this came to vivid expression when the Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar declared himself to be the saviour of the world. He said, I quote, Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Do you recognize that? Well, he was the Pontifex Maximus, and Christianity's radical descent from this was seen when uh, Peter gets up in the book of Acts, and he says in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, this was considered not a religious, but a political offense. This was acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. This is why the church was persecuted. We're coming to that now. It wasn't just that Christ was savior. He's my personal savior, and he's not going to interfere with anything socially or politically. I'm just, I've got my ticket to heaven, I've got my fire insurance, I'm going to get there and that's it. No, this was a resistance to a particular view of political authority as Lord and Sovereign, as saving, as messianic, as priestly in relation to man. That's why the gospel was so revolutionary. Was the state God incarnate or was the state to be under God? Now, both views relate religion and the state. It's not, it's not that one separates them and the other joins them. The question was simply, is the state to be under God? Is Caesar under Jesus Christ? Or is the state over everything? Now, this is the conflict which confronted early Christianity, and it's no less real today. Now, in an article reflecting, uh, the, uh, uh, reflecting on the alleged failures of the American government to prevent the terrorist attacks on September 11th in 2001... The Harvard professor, former leader of the Liberal Party in Canada, Michael Ignatieff, he articulates in an article the modern concept of sovereignty. This is what he says. This is former leader of the Liberal Party in Canada, Michael Ignatieff. A sovereign is a state with a monopoly on the means of force. It is the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. Let me say that again. A sovereign is a state with a monopoly on the means of force. That far we can agree, although we might question the the use of the word sovereign there. The U.S. uh, uh, Constitution avoids that. It is the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. Now, there's no difference between that and, and that held by the Roman Republic. The state was the source of, was the, uh, was the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. And this is the cause of the conflict that involves the political persecution of the unofficial church in China today. One BBC commentator in a moment of rare clarity for the BBC grasped the essence of the issue in China well when he said this. After the communist victory in 1948, missionaries were expelled, but Christianity was permitted in state-sanctioned churches, so long as they gave primary allegiance to the Communist Party. Mao, on the other hand, described religion as poison, and the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s attempted to eradicate it. 
Driven underground, Christianity not only survived, but with its own Chinese martyrs, it grew in strength. Since the 80s, when religious belief was again permitted, the official churches have gradually created more space for themselves. They report to the State Administration for Religious Affairs. They are forbidden to take part in any religious activity outside their places of worship and sign up to the slogan, quote, love the country, love your religion. In return, the party promotes atheism in schools, but undertakes to protect and respect religion until such a time as religion itself will disappear. What the authorities consider non-negotiable is the house church's refusal to acknowledge any official authority over their organization, end quote. Now, interestingly enough, I was speaking at a men's retreat up in um, northern Ontario recently, and there were a number of um, Chinese Christians there who were living in Canada now who'd come fairly recently from China, and I asked them to give me their impressions of the Canadian church, and they said it's like the state church in China. Now, despite this opposition that the Chinese church has had, they are armed with a principle of freedom under God. From Scripture, that Christ Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, Revelation 1.5 says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that's not future tense, that's now. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Just look at Psalm 2, what it says about Jesus Christ. Christ, not the state, is seen as the ultimate source of allegiance and the sovereign source of law. And today there are more Christians worshipping Christ in China than all of Europe put together. A hundred million minimum, probably a great deal more than all Europe put together. So the issue for the church in the first century, as now, was one of freedom, lordship, and sovereignty. And we have to answer the same basic question today. The church has to answer this question. What's the basis of freedom? Is it possible for the state to be religiously neutral? And is God in Christ the object of ultimate allegiance and source of law? Or is man enlarged, that is the state, to be assigned a role that supersedes that of the Son of God? Where you're told you have freedom of worship but not religion. Which I think is Hillary Clinton's language. Where you're told that, yes, you can worship Jesus, but uh, just accept this license from the state. You're given permission. Well, the Council of Chalcedon, going back to it, met in 451 to deal with a point of Christology. It was theological, it was pastoral in character, but it had a tremendous bearing on the future of the West. What they did was upheld, first of all, the orthodox understanding of Christ's full humanity and full deity, which was Nicene in character. But they clarified that this union of the two natures was without confusion, without change, without division and without separation. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So they preserved the unity of Christ's person in the incarnation, but those natures were not melded together. They weren't collapsed. This is the importance of sometimes what seems like an abstract doctrinal definition, but it has massive implications for what we think about uh, our relationship to God, what we think about uh, humanity and what we think about the state itself. 
It probably wasn't the council's major concern at the time, and I don't think they necessarily appreciated the full significance of their work, but the indirect result of their formulation was that Christianity could not be melded with paganism. Because here, the natural does not ascend to the divine or the supernatural. That is, man is not God. Jesus is not a divinized man. He's not like a pagan who's... Uh, uh, the pagan idea where a human being ascends to divinity. There is uh, separation without confusion in the two natures, without division. Sorry, there is no separation but there, uh, and there's no division, there's no change, but there is no confusion of the natures. So God doesn't collapse into humanity and humanity does not ascend to divinity. Are you with me so far? Yes? This is a critical point. The bridge is golfed, you see, by revelation and by the incarnation of Christ. Salvation, therefore, is not of man, nor can it ever be by means of man's politics. It's by grace in the one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. That's the extent of his authority. He's the true man. He's He's the true son. He's true Israel also. He's the son of man and the son of God. As such, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, we find the only mediator and the only source of salvation. Now, this meant that human institutions cannot profess to be incarnations of divinity. No human institution can now assume or usurp a divine prerogative if the state or any uh, human institution, including the church, can be conceived of as an imminent divine human order, then you've got no appeal beyond that institution, have you? If the state speaks for God or is God, how can you appeal beyond the state for justice? How can you judge whether a law enacted is righteous or unrighteous. How can you appeal against human authority as tyranny if the state is an incarnation of the divine? Do you see? Or if the church even should say, uh, here is the locus of divinity, here is a continuation of the kingdom of God in this institution, here is the vicar of Christ. How can you have an appeal beyond the word of man? You see, the political order would then be the final order, and man is simply a political or a social animal, as the Greek philosophers consistently held. But if we're defined by the body politic, what happens to liberty? You see, this is what's happening in the United States right now and in all of the West. The courts and our politicians are redefining humanity. How do we make an appeal beyond them in terms of liberty then? If we don't have the one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. On this view, you see, liberty was non-existent and liberty was non-existent in the ancient world. You had a degree of it if you were a Roman citizen. If you weren't, you were nothing. You, you were something only in your relationship to the state in the ancient world. To be a stateless person was a terrible thing. Permission from the state 
to exercise certain areas of activity could exist, but not liberty apart from and beyond the state grounded in man's creation by God. Law and life are then defined or redefined, as we're seeing today, by government statute. They don't see themselves as subject to God, but as the source of ultimate, as the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of a new law. Law and life become subsumed then purely in government statute. The governance of society is reduced to an aspect of state social policy. No God, no divine law, then there is no appeal beyond the state. The state, not God, is then sovereign and Lord. And this is what happens whenever the state denies God. It has actually established itself de facto as the divine per se. It's asserted its own divinity. That means that every state is inescapably a religious order. And in this instance, when you deny Christ, it becomes a saving institution. And that's completely logical. Modern politicians, modern politics essentially believes that man must be saved by man through politics. You see, without God, history is impersonal. And the challenge that we face socially and politically is the chaos of our environment that is threatening to crush us. Because there's no God, there's no sovereign Lord, there's no providence of God. So our environment is threatening to crush us, and there is no sin from which you need to be saved. Your environment is the problem. This has led, of course, and did in paganism and is again today to the idea of fate, impersonal forces determining reality, and this leads to the irrelevance of freedom. If things are purely determined and it's an impersonal world, then what relevance does freedom and ethics and morality have to anything? The solution to the human problem is planning and control by an elite to save man from himself and his chaotic environment. Freedom becomes increasingly irrelevant in social and political life. Freedom is obsolete in such a world where chaos surrounds you and man must save you from that chaos. Listen, if you want to know what's behind the green movement and all of that, and planetary salvation, it's about man believing that the environment threatens to crush him and destroy him, and he must save himself by social planning. Creeds of Orthodox Christianity, though, meant that God's reign isn't mediated directly by people and their institutions, but by Jesus Christ alone. All authority and power must serve him as his diaconate submitting to his word. And so the implications of Chalcedonian Christology militate against both ancient and modern statism, as well as, it should be added, what we heard about yesterday evening, ecclesiocracy, where the state is ruled by the church. Providing instead a principle of freedom. If the sun sets you free... You will be free indeed. I don't think as Christians we fully captured the implications of that statement. We've truncated the gospel so much that we think it just refers to to me and my personal salvation and my, my going to heaven. But there's much more to freedom in Christ than that. 
On the Christian view, we are no longer slaves to sin and sinful structures that men use it to lord it over others. We can make our appeal to God. Only when the individual and community has this transcendent authority and recognizes it is true freedom actually possible. And that is the basis of Western freedom. There's a reason why it didn't develop anywhere else. The reason is that we agreed with Paul that there is only one mediator between man and God, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. And actually, we recently celebrated the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta, which was the basis of all political and social freedom in the Western world. I think it was, if memory serves, it's not in my notes, 1215, I think, Runnymede, where the uh, barons resisted the authoritarianism of King John and they appealed back to Alfred the Great and his, his um, law code, which begins with the Ten Commandments, and appealed to God and his law and his word for the freedom of the Englishman, which is actually what the American Revolution was really about. Freedom where the king himself had to be subject to the law. To whose law? God's law. That is the basis of Western freedom. And uh, if you look at the coronation oath of our queen, queen, uh, not, well, it used to be all of ours, but you lot uh, rebelled. Uh, But uh, if you look at the coronation oath of, of, of Queen Elizabeth II, And the anointing of Queen Elizabeth, it's incredible. She she makes an oath as the monarch, as the head of state, in a parliamentary democracy where there's the balancing of powers to defend the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. She swore to do it. If I I could read, I haven't got time to read you that element of the service. It's incredible. It, It harks back to the coronations of ancient Israel. And actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, when the U.S. president took the presidential oath of office, it used to be on an open Bible to Deuteronomy 28. Not a closed Bible. Invoking the blessings and cursings of God upon the nation for obedience and disobedience. Uh, The British Parliament uh, took the solemn league and covenant in the Puritan era, and it was even ratified by King Charles II at the Restoration to serve God. Do you think God's forgotten those oaths? Do you think he takes them lightly? I don't. When we swear, when we get married, when people marry today and they make an oath, they may think it doesn't count when they swear before God to be committed. In fact, in much of the West today, you can't really be legally married because with no-fault divorce, what is marriage? I can just go home tomorrow and say, I'm I'm divorcing you, sorry. I mean, how's that a marriage commitment? That's another subject. But oaths mean something to God. There's covenantal consequences in Scripture for abandonment of our oaths. But in the modern era, what happened, that freedom that we enjoyed, the reemergence of statism really came with the French Revolution, with Rousseau's social contract, and the Hegelian politics of power. The German philosopher Hegel said, the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. The state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. Expressed today not merely in efforts to ignore, but increasingly deny the right of the family, the church, and organizations to any independent existence. Whether it's increasing, ever increasingly oppressive taxation, state license and regulation on pretty much everything, 
In Britain today, the state considers itself the elder brother and takes 40% of your inheritance. That's not freedom. I work half the year for the state. I lose 50% of my income to, uh, hidden, uh, to open and hidden taxes. You know, God is a lot more, uh, less, less of a task. He asks for a tenth, not, not 50%. The key problem we face in the West today, though, is the modern concept of freedom is political, not theological. That's the issue. Uh, we heard um, this morning about some of the issues with the moral majority and, and, uh, uh, and all of that. And I think part of the problem there was the political definition of freedom rather than the theological definition of freedom. There's no point being a conservative if it's just to conserve some past. We have to have a theological understanding of freedom. And it is given to us in Jesus Christ. But when liberty is defined politically, not theologically, freedom is destroyed... And that is because non-Christian thought is dialectical. That is, it tries to unite the opposing ideas of nature and freedom. That is, determination and choice. How can you have unity and diversity in a culture without it collapsing into a tyranny where the state is emphasized or to anarchy where the individual is emphasized? How can you have both nature and freedom in the secular Uh, notions of those. So we talk about freedom, but we believe in coercion. To solve this vision, uh, this, uh, this problem, this dialectical tension of how do you have unity and diversity, how do you have freedom, but also recognize determinism in nature? Well, there was the social contract between autonomous men. That was the idea of the revolution. It wasn't a covenantal idea of society, of a community under God, which is what Britain and the United States and Canada understood themselves to be. But the social contract was autonomous men agree together, which is why you can always update the social contract and just redefine things as you go along. Autonomous men have a contract with each other to live in a certain way. Man's ethical creativity and autonomous thought, though, puts that constantly under pressure, and so the state is emphasized more and more to try and retain unity in a world where common law, community, is vanishing into irrelevance. How do you maintain unity in a culture that says man is autonomous? He just has a social contract to live in a certain way for a certain period. And where man is independent of God and can think as he will, how do you uh, retain a social order without it collapsing? Well, the French Revolution led to the reign of terror, didn't it? And then a dictatorship. wasn't too successful, this, uh, this contract between autonomous men. Because usually that means lopping people's heads off. For the Christian, though, socio-political application of the gospel and of Trinitarian orthodoxy gives us the mindset, I want to su- suggest to you, of a biblical libertarian. A biblical libertarian. Where we see the reign of Christ and his sovereignty, his salvation, his law, as the source of human liberty. 
where outside of that we live necessarily as slaves. Because instead of getting this utopia that salvation by politics promises, people just get lawlessness in which they're victims. And that's what we're seeing now in the West. So-called women's liberation, for example, to give you a very quick illustration, is destroying the freedom of women. The only, the only people who have gained from so-called women's liberation is men. They're the people who've gained. That's why my church is full of young women who can't find husbands. Who want to marry. Who want to have a family. But the men on offer are 30-year-old delinquents who sit in their mum's basement playing Xbox, eating their cornflakes in their boxer shorts, and they, because they want to keep, keep things open, keep things free. It begins with the contraceptive revolution, which disconnected sex from family and procreation. And actually, who are the losers? Women have been the losers. It's just liberated man to do what he wants. You see, lawlessness, it's lawlessness and slavery that's the result from abandoning God, not freedom. The Christian life, self-realization, is not comprehended by the state, but by the triune God. Liberty can only reemerge in our culture when the state's pagan claim to total authority and sovereignty is resisted and the state reduced to its historic role in Christendom, to biblical limits as a ministry of justice. So when we talk about what's the church's relationship to the state, actually, when our forebears spoke about government, if I say the word to you, let's talk about the government, you think the state. Do you know how part-time the state used to be? How many weeks the Congress used to sit or Parliament sat? It was a part-time thing. Now they sit and deliberate and make endless laws every year that nobody can keep or even knows. You need expert lawyers in every single field. God's content with 613. We have millions. As G.K. Chesterton put it, if you get rid of the Ten Commandments, you'll live by the 10,000 Commandments. Progressively, we're made uh, slaves. So the church has to assert freedom under God and begin to do the things that it was called to do and stop letting the state do them. That's why the state is so big. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. If you want Caesar to get smaller, give to God what belongs to God. Caesar is enormous today because we don't tithe. Even in the great United States, if you collected up all the tithes of the people, in the Christians in the U.S., it amounts to about 2%. Well, how can we build Christian schools and provide for welfare and so forth if we don't tithe, which is God's tax, because he owns everything. I'm standing on a few toes and I'm enjoying it. As one social historian put it, is God or the state man's savior? The answer in Chal- of Chalcedon is emphatically for God and liberty. Western liberty began when the claim of the state to be man's savior was denied. The state then, according to scripture, was made a ministry of justice. But wherever Christ ceases to be man's savior, their liberty perishes as the state again asserts messianic claims. And I put it to you that that is the issue we're facing today. We've truncated the gospel so that freedom and liberty has been reduced to that sense of my personal freedom 
And we've not seen the extent of the implications of freedom in Jesus Christ in terms of his lordship, his person. As a result, we've reduced our role increasingly. The church has progressively... St- we, used to, we built the universities. They're ours. All of them. We've built the hospitals. We paid for the hospitals. We paid for education. We ran the wel- welfare for the poor. What do we do now? Just build a new building. Build a gym. Hire a bigger professional staff. Do we really spend our money on the right things? You see, there can be little doubt that we see this correlation in the rest today, where more and more regulation, controls, and agencies seek to save man by making him a slave, making him a slave and steadily the family, the church, and private organizations are stripped of freedom and liberty. Now, the, the temptation, the first temptation given to man, the basis of all other temptation is Genesis 3.5. What was it? You will be as God. Isn't that the essence of sin? And when men get together, they enlarge that sin. In the state. Not that the state in itself is a... The state is a God-ordained institution. It's a ministry of justice. But when it overreaches, it says, we will be as God. And we'll redefine good and evil. Right from wrong, truth from falsehood. It finds its fertile expression there, you see, in this humanistic order where men try and join heaven and earth and recreate paradise by their social planning. And we hear our politicians, don't we, talk about their world bank and world currency and tax structures and world courts and international law. And we hear politicians talking about the new world order and so on. This is equalitarian, egalitarian paganism. It's an alternative to the kingdom of God. At the same time, though, although Christians prioritize liberty, freedom, and self-discipline, we're not opposed to civil government. We believe in civil government. It's civil government. When we use the term government, I didn't even get back to that, did I? We almost always just think about the state. But when our forebears used it, they meant first the individual self-government of himself. And if you can't govern yourself, you can't rule a city. That's Proverbs. And then there is the government of the church. We heard about church discipline this morning. Then you have government within the vocation. So you have the colleges of physicians. And you have the bar associations. So you have government there. And then you have civil government, which is the police and the courts. Or at least that was the idea for our forebears. Now, when you use the word government, you think of the largesse of the state in everything. Historically, though, Christians regarded the government of men as one of the highest vocations. Protestant Christians particular, though, in particular, were terrified by the notion of consolidating all authority and power in the hands of any man or one institution. I think that was the idea between the separation of powers here in the United States. You can't entrust one body with total power. Since man is a sinner and only Jesus Christ, the true Lord and Savior of man, biblical faith does not share the confidence of our century that social cohesion depends on governmental structures. Rather, the civil government interfering with dominating, regulating people's lives makes them slave wards of a nanny state. We don't diminish the importance of the magistrate. 
On the contrary, in God's economy, church, state, family are partners in the Christian commonwealth. Contrary to myth, the Puritan founders of parliamentary democracy in England and in the Americas did not believe in ecclesiocracy. They didn't believe that the church should, the clergy should rule the state. Rather, church and state were to be distinct spheres under God, which enjoyed freedom from state interference and vice versa. Not only were church and state not to be antagonistic, they were to mutually support each other. New England, 1646, the Puritan ministers summarized their view of the ideal relationship between Christianity and civil government. They said this, The church's desire, the magistrate commands. Churches act in way of liberty, the magistrate in way of authority. Moses and Aaron should go together and kiss one another on the Mount of God. I like that. Moses and Aaron should go together and kiss one another on the Mount of God. They were complementary, not competitive, where the church ministers the word of God and the civil authority bears the sword, both submitting to the authority of God and his word. That was the role of the prophet in Israel, to remind the state to be subject to God. Thus, the state was to be God's servant, and any political order that refused to be such was considered a tyranny. And this was believed by our evangelical forebears in the West. You know, the motto of Canada's founding fathers was from Psalm 72, verse 8. It's the motto of Canada to uh, to this day. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It was Christ's dominion. Uh, I was going to give you a couple of illustrations from, uh, I'm running out of time, I've only got half an hour left. Um, I mean, a couple of minutes left. I, I, was gonna, I was going to give you a couple of illustrations from debates in the Canadian Senate at the beginning of the 20th century over the Lord's Day Act, in which, basically, I'll summarize it for you, that um, liberal senators, lots of them, I'm using the Liberal Party because it's not, it wasn't just the Conservatives, were appealing to, um, well, let me just read you this one citation from James McMullen, North Wellington, Ontario. This is 1906, Lord's Day Bill. We must not forget that we claim to be a Christian nation. We are a Christian professing nation, at least, and as such, we should respect the laws of God. This is in the Canadian Senate. We generally make our laws in accordance with the provisions of God's law. His law says, thou shalt not kill, and our law says that man that sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. God's law says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And our law says that a man who is guilty of perjury is liable to be punished and imprisoned for violation of the law. We confirm all these commandments by legislation. Why do we not confirm that commandment which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? We are responsible to a higher authority. The the responsibility is that we should recognize God's law that is established and published in his own word. Well, you could knock me down with a feather. Canadian senator in the 20th century. This was the common conviction. There was a sense that we were accountable both to the first and second table of God's law. And uh, William Ross from Halifax gets up in the same series of debates and he says, now the individual or the family, the community, province or the dominion which observe the Sabbath day as it should be observed is one that will prosper. 
And if we are to enter upon the downgrade by setting at defiance the fourth commandment, we will go down as a nation by doing so, end quote. And did you know that William Wilberforce, in one of the founders of evangelicalism in Britain, argued the same way with respect to slavery? He says, if we do not, basically, in sum, if we don't abolish slavery, it's all over for Britain. God's judgment is upon us. He had a covenantal reason for his pursuit of the abolition of the slave trade. Scripture says that empires, kings, governments, and their fortunes are the product of God's active justice to bless, curse, or judge a nation. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. The events of history are not coincidental, they're not accidental. It's not random, it's not chance. Righteousness exalts a nation. Scripture is clear about that everywhere. And indeed, God's word tells us that the very definition of what it means to be loving towards our neighbor, which is the basis of social freedom, is the word of God. And that anything which militates against the law of God is unloving and harmful by definition, for love is the fulfillment of the law, according to Paul in Romans. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So, Christ is king, and this provides for freedom under God. And if the state steps outside of its sphere of administration of justice, it plays God, and it will invariably start to persecute the individual in favor of group rights, and it will reduce the freedom of the family, the church. It will destroy localism. It will centralize power. It will say it's pursuing social justice and saving the planet, but it actually is destroying liberty, and power becomes there simply to serve itself. There is no disestablishment of religion from the state. I put it to you that that is an impossible myth. There is a separation of the jurisdiction of church and state, but there is no separation of religion from the state. This is acknowledged by secular political philosophers. You don't need to turn to Christian thinkers to to, to discover this. Uh, In fact... um, Uh, Rex Adar and Ian Lee in an article in the McGill Law Journal in Canada uh, writing on is establishment consistent with religious freedom, they said this, for a modern state to remain entirely impartial is we submit an impossible feat. The idea of a purely neutral state in which there is no official endorsement of the true and good of a political community that excuse the notion that it acts on the basis of substantive values is a mirage. The established position will inevitably exclude the worldviews of some citizens, end quote. You cannot disestablish a God concept, a source of sovereignty, as the source of law from the state. Behind every concept of sovereignty is a doctrine of God. It might be Islamic, go to Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. It might be Hindu, go to India. It might be Taoist or Confucian or Marxist might be Christian, but you can be sure there is an establishment of religion. You cannot disestablish religion. You can separate the jurisdiction of church and state. Today what we're seeing is, and what we have, is the establishment of humanism. Increasingly of paganism. That's what we have. Certainly in Canada, increasingly in Britain, we're looking to the United States to do something Still a bit different. If there's a sufficient groundswell, 
The British have just, uh, in the second largest party in England, the Labour Party, have just voted in a Trotskyite to lead the party. Jeremy Corbyn. He's an open Marxist communist. It's a frightening thought that he could be Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau, up in Canada, leader of the Liberal Party, could be the next Prime Minister in Canada. He's a Marxist, cultural Marxist as well. There's no such thing as disestablishment there. Freedom is relative. Freedom is relative, and I'm done now, either relative to man or it's relative to God. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. You must be related to something to have freedom. Freedom from what to be what? That's the question. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. We can shout about freedom politically. Our politicians can shout about it. But the question is freedom from what to be what? Freedom is relative. A man drifting through space is not free, is he? He's not related to anything. He can't move. It's only when you're related to a planetary body that you have freedom to move about. And so we're either, our freedom is either relative to God or it's going to be relative to man. Now, in the Christian view, personal freedom, social liberty, and Christ's dominion are one and the same thing. That's true freedom. The whole of the ancient world, one historian has put it, was marked by fear of freedom. I close with this quote. Plato and Aristotle planned states in which freedom was to be denied to most men and pagan rulers uniformly acted on this principle. Freedom was believed to be a dangerous thing and only a handful of rulers could be trusted with it. Men do not like freedom because they themselves are not free by nature. The basic slavery is slavery to sin and is basic to our being. Jesus declared, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. The root of slavery is the nature of man. They will vote for slavery because they are slaves. They dislike and fear freedom because they are at enmity with God. Men fear freedom because it means life and responsibility under God. The flight from freedom is, first of all, the flight from God who created man to be responsible and to exercise dominion over the earth under him. The choice is always God or slavery. And uh, I want to suggest to you today that perhaps the, most, the greatest need of the church in our time, if we're going to get this right, and a recovery of freedom is not the recovery of Puritan a world order or the medieval order. We know better on certain things than they did, but we have to reassert that there is only one mediator between man and God. There is only one ultimate sovereign to whom we owe final allegiance in every area of life, family, individually, vocationally, church and state, and that is the man Jesus Christ. And he asserts that authority himself over all men. All authority in heaven and earth, he says, is mine. And if we would be a free people going forward, the freedom of the gospel, and retain the freedom to even preach the gospel, which is evaporating in Europe, we will assert, and must assert again, the sovereignty and the lordship, the kingship of Jesus.